James chapter 2. We're continuing this series, we've titled it Together, because James is writing to the Jewish Christians, even though they're scattered throughout the Roman Empire, he's writing to the churches and he is instructing them how to operate as a church together. And today we're going to look at how our, our faith, specifically the works, follow our faith. And as I was kind of putting this together this morning, I, I was reminded of a story by Art Spiegelman. You don't know his name, I'm sure. But he wrote a story, his dad's story, of how his father survived the Jewish Holocaust in Nazi Germany. How he was put on trains and, and treated in Auschwitz and different camps and things like that. And and uh, one of the stories that hit me this morning, uh, it just came to my mind, when he was a little boy, he, he shares that he was playing a game with some friends, and the boys in the group, they started to bully him, or pretty mean to him. And he went home, and his father, who most parents would show sympathy to a little boy who was just outcast by those who claimed to love him, claimed to be his friends. Most fathers would say, hey, son, buck up. It'll be okay. You know, just know your mom and I still love you or something like that. You know what Art Spiegelman's dad said? Friends. Lock them in a small room with nothing but a piece of wood to chew on for a month and then you tell me who your friends are. Brings a lot of perspective to relationship, doesn't it? I want you to look around the room this morning. We're a church family. We're to be together. But take away food. Take away comfort. When we're meeting in basements, when we're meeting in attics, when the person across the aisle from you may turn you and your family over for a bowl of soup, how together are we? That's the question we have to ask, right? How much of a church are we really? When we have our faith, our faith is to be something that's active. Our faith should be showing love for one another. Last week we talked about the, the sin of favoritism or partiality within the church and, and how we treat one another within the church. And James is going to touch on that yet again. But the truth is, our faith that moves us closer together, it has to be an active faith. It has to be a faith that not just moves, but moves us. We have to be an active, loving church together. Oswald Chambers said, the church that does not evangelize will fossilize a body that does not move. You've heard me say this now for going on four and a half years. A body that doesn't move is probably a dead body. There has to be action to our faith, action to what we say we believe. If we say we're together we have to ask, well, how together do I really want to be with these people? <laughs> and I hope it's very together. I hope you're saying, this is my church. This is my brother, sister, my family in Christ. But are we really together? That is the question we hope to answer. And, and if it's a problem, hopefully so, uh, find the solution for as we go through this series we begin reading in verse 14. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, the faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead." Father, this morning, as we go into your word, send your Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts, our minds, that we may receive what you have for us today. I pray that you use the meager ability of this preacher to build your kingdom, to do your work. Father, I pray that you be glorified through this in all that we say and do this morning. Amen. Christians who say their faith, produ- their faith uh, is a good thing or they say they have faith in Christ and yet they produce nothing. Christians who say, well, I belong to this church, I belong to this body, and yet they do nothing with the faith they proclaim as a part of that body. They're not really a part of the body of Christ. They're not. That's what James is telling us in this text. Oh, but I've got a faith. okay. But what does your faith do? Well, nothing. You're not part of a body. You want to be part of a corpse. If we have no production as a church, if we have stopped moving, James is very clear, we're dead. If you take nothing else away from the message this morning, if you're taking notes, if you're looking at the screen, you may want to write this down. Our faith must produce action. I'll say it again. Our faith must produce produce action. When a Christian is told to be silent about their faith, to be quiet about their faith, to shut up about their faith, well, the Christian has to find that impossible. I cannot help but speak of the glories of God. I cannot help but share the gospel of Jesus. Now, maybe, maybe you're not going door to door through Lisbon, knocking on doors and telling everybody, hey, You know, you ought to come to Faith Assembly of God. Maybe that's not you. I don't like to get chased by people's dogs either. Believe me on that. Maybe you're not sitting in your office cubicle blaring DC Talks Jesus Freak every Friday. That's okay. But our faith has to be evident to the world around us. Our faith must produce action. That's what James is telling us. That's what he's getting at in our text. Now, I want to be very clear. This portion of the text is very hard. This portion of Scripture within James is so difficult for some people. They think James is legalistic or he's promoting some sort of works-based salvation, and that is not at all the case. In fact, he's doing quite the opposite. 
James is making an argument, and I hope and I pray I do it justice today. He's making the argument that our faith must not just be obvious in our actions, but be a cause for our actions, that our faith produces these actions. J.R.R. Tolkien, when he was writing The Lord of the Rings, when it came out, people came to him and and it said they asked, you know, you're friends with C.S. Lewis. And he was. If you know anything about C.S. Lewis's testimony, Tolkien was a very key part in his salvation. They were very good friends. And someone came to him and they said, did you set out to write Lord of the Rings as an allegory, just like your friend Lewis did with his Narnia books? And Tolkien said, no. No, I didn't. But it said that as he did it, he said, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. And as I would write, I would find in my story elements of Christianity finding their way into my work. Now, if you've ever read that story, by the way, it's an epic fantasy, and I'm not just bringing it up because Pastor's a big geek, okay? Point is, if you read Lord of the Rings, if you watch the movies, you can see elements of sin and a need for redemption in the story of the ring. You can see the importance of fellowship among people towards a common goal. In fact, the first book is called The Fellowship of the Ring. We have fellowship in church. Koinonia is the Greek word. It's kind of our thing. I mean, the last book, for crying out loud, it's called Return of the King. How many of you look forward to that ending? I say all this because Tolkien did this unintentionally. His faith found its way into his work, as it should in all of us. But more important, it should be cause to do work. It should birth in us a desire to be active for the kingdom. If we claim to have faith in Christ, we have to produce a moving faith, an obvious faith, a working faith, and finally, a fearless faith. In short, like I said, our faith must produce action. Action that is God-glorifying, God Christ-exalting, Spirit-led. The first thing I would like us to look at this morning in verse 14, beginning there, an, a moving faith. We must produce a moving faith. James says, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can't, uh, can that faith save him? What use is it? Well, it's a rhetorical question. The implication is it's of no use. In fact, the way James writes this in the Greek, it's implied. This is a negative answer, guys. He, I mean, he sets it up on a T for them. What use is it? You're supposed to say none. That's the way the Greek would operate to them. Can that faith save him in the same way? No, it can't. It's a useless faith. It's, it's a rhetorical question. Faith... Genuine faith is not the basis of salvation anyway. It is the means. It is the instrument by which one is saved. Paul writes the Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Now, to be clear, we would agree with the doctrine of sola fide, which is a Latin phrase meaning by faith alone. But we would agree with that only as it pertains to the other four sola doctrines that we believe, and as it especially pertains to sola gratia, grace alone. Salvation, it goes, is found 
through grace alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. But in a different sense, and to a different extreme, someone might say faith alone, that is faith without evidence. James is saying that's a hollow faith. Faith by itself, without any proof. What's it matter? What use is that kind of faith? They, faith, they have no works. Works, by the way, is the, the Greek word ergon. It means no working, no deeds, no obligation to complete. It's a lazy faith. There's no outward evidence of an inward move of the Spirit. James says, can such a faith really save anybody? Now, I know somebody watching online, and even some of you who are well-versed in Scripture, you might be sitting there going, I don't know about this, because Romans says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But the key words in that verse, confess with your mouth. That is a work, by the way. It's an outward expression of an inward change. It's, that, it's quiet at first, possibly, but that confession that continues to grow within the heart of the believer, it comes out of our mouth. It expresses what God has done and is doing within our hearts. And the very next verse, by the way, context matters. The very next verse, for with the heart a person believes leading to righteousness and with the mouth he confesses leading to salvation. That leading to or resulting in righteousness, depending on your translation, how would you know? How would you know there is righteousness? By works. By the outward evidence in the life of the person who claims to possess that faith. In a similar way, in the Assemblies of God, we, we talked about this in our membership class this morning. We believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the, bab that the Holy Spirit comes upon a believer and overflows into their life. It's a secondary thing. It is not, I don't care what some of other preachers say, it is not required for salvation. It is something that God does within us. And what happens? Well, we have this thing we call the initial physical evidence, which is the result of, we believe in speaking in tongues. We are not taught how to speak in tongues. That is blasphemy. When you watch these preachers on TV trying to say, you just say this word a bunch of times, that is not what we see in scripture. You're putting words in God's mouth in that case. We are receiving, what we are doing is receiving an overflow of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which results in another language, an actual language, human or angelic, pouring forth from our mouth. That is an external evidence of what God is doing within us through faith. And Jesus makes it very clear, talking about when the, when the disciples would receive this for the very first time. He says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And many times we would just love it if that just stopped right there. So we can come to church and have these powerful meetings and have these great things happen to us. But the key is, he says the word and, because it follows, that you will be his witnesses. There's a work. That's a work that follows the Spirit's move in our life. Now, the Holy Spirit could have never touched that person, and yet they somehow speak in tongues. That happens. Sure. Tongues can be faked for a season. In a similar way, the person may claim to be saved by grace through faith, and, and their works might even be faked for a season. 
The fruit of the Spirit can be faked, not for very long. And of all three of these, that's the one that's more noticeable faster than any of them. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'll say that last one again for those in the cheap seats, self-control. If you claim to have a move of God on your life, you claim to be active in the Holy Spirit and you can't keep your temper under control, you can't talk to your family politely, you can't even muster the humility to apologize after you've blown up at your family, then God help you because you are a hypocrite. You have no self-control. You are lacking in the fruit of the Spirit in your life. These cannot be faked for long. Similarly, the works James is talking about are not temporary. It is a lifelong thing. Now you might have a moment, oh, pastor, I'll help you carry that. Or, or I'd love to come to the church and vacuum for, for our broken down janitor's arm, you know. I want to help out. These are nice. These are kind gestures. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a lifelong thing. Works are not something, the works of the Spirit in our life are not something you ever get to retire from. In fact, I've seen this in our church. Some of our retired people are some of the most active people. And as they're doing these things, they're doing these things to help build the church, build the kingdom. And as the pastor, I gotta say, I really appreciate that. But as long as our faith is maintained, works must follow. That's what James is telling us. The, the works flow from the believer's life. But look at the, he gives us an example of the hypocrisy of an unmoving faith. Verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what is that? What use is that? This is an illustration of dead faith. A faith without works. A faith that produces nothing of worth. The person's without clothes. They have no daily source of food. And the response, oh, it's such a pious, totally Christian, Christianese church response, isn't it? Brother, go in peace. Be filled. How dare you? It sounds nice, but it's like most of the things that get said in the church these days. It's about an inch deep. Like sermons that motivate us to do something with the gospel, but never actually define what the gospel is. Like teaching us a sermon on five easy steps to a, to a faith-filled marriage, but never actually tell about having faith in Christ Jesus or a Christ-centered marriage. Oh, but Pastor Jeff, it's implied that those things are understood. We know what they're saying. It's implied the person hearing knows the gospel. It's implied the person hearing knows that their, their marriage should be centered around Christ. The implication does not clothe. And the implication does not feed and nourish. True faith goes the extra mile and it says, you know what, let me buy you lunch. Let's go to the thrift store. That's all I can afford. Here's my jacket in the meantime. Let me help you fill out the job application and the SNAP application and the Medicaid application. Let me do what I can for you. 
This is almost what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Except the person in Jesus' scenario is kind of doing it to inconvenience the person. They're doing it on purpose, almost to hurt the person being asked. It's not what James is talking about. James makes it very clear. It's a fellow believer. He says, a brother or a sister. If a brother or a sister comes to you, how wicked, how evil to just give them a platitude, a Bible quote, a pious phrase, and send them on their way rather than trying to meet their immediate needs. I want to be clarifying this too as I say this. We're not a public soup kitchen. This is not a community effort. He's talking about helping out one another together. That that is our first priority. Now, I'm not saying we don't help the world around us. Please understand me when I say that. There's nothing wrong with soup kitchens. There's nothing wrong with church folks helping out in their community. If you know me, you know I'm all about that. But the church is the church's first priority. Those who are hurting within the church. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I was, as a youth pastor, I remember very distinctly you, you guys, some of you know the type of pastor I worked for. Um, this woman calls our church, and she's a single mom of about four kids, and she's hurting. She desperately needs groceries, cannot make it till the first of the month. Pastor Jeff, could we just get something from the food pantry? Our church had a food pantry. Most churches don't anymore. They have benevolence funds, and they'll go out and buy people the groceries as they need them. Because in a food pantry, what I found out was a lot of times, even though those canned goods are there, they expire. There is a date on those things. But I took what we had. I took it down to her house, talked with her, prayed with her. And by the time I got back to the church, even though he'd been gone all day, my senior pastor finally shows up. Don't know where he was. Don't care. But he gets on to me. He goes, where did you go? I tell him, well, you know, sister so-and-so, she'd called. She... And his response wasn't, well, she should be filled. She, we should clothe her. His response was, she doesn't tithe. Did that matter? No, it shouldn't have. But sometimes that's what we do, isn't it? They're not my brother or sister unless they fit that mold. We saw this last week. The partiality. I almost lost my job over that. Threatened to fire me. Wasting church's time to help such a person. Maybe you can understand why I'm so passionate about that. If we cannot show good works to those who belong to the church itself, how dare we call ourselves a body of believers? How can we claim to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ? We can't. That's why James says in verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. It's dead. It has no works to accompany it. It's alone. It's, it's by itself. There's no evidence to prove it. It has no life. It brings no life. It has no results. It cannot lead to salvation. He's going back to something he said back in verse 14. It's a useless faith. It's not a saving faith. It's dead, it's cold, it's lonely, it's not going to survive, it's stopped moving. Our faith must produce action. Our faith must produce, an, or our faith must be an obvious faith. Verse 18, it says, 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, this is what James is doing here. It's very common in the Greek. Uh, Paul does this a few times in Romans. Romans 3.31, Romans 6.1, just as a couple of examples. He's giving us a hypothetical self-debate sort of thing. I just did this when I said, now some of you might know the Bible and I talked about Romans, right? It's something you do. You create this, this other person in the speech or in the letter to try and help flesh out the point. Nobody actually was saying this necessarily, but someone might or someone may eventually come around. You hear me do this in sermons. Like I said, I'll say, oh, but pastor, what about this? Or pastor, you say that. It's just a way of explaining the point. That's what James is doing. And he takes this hypothetical person and they say, well, you have your faith and I have my faith. You do your faith your way, I'll do your, my faith my way. But they're basically the same thing. That's what he's saying here. James is saying we are not the same. Works have to follow genuine faith or it's not a real faith. And this is where people really start to get lost on James they start to say, think that he's suggesting that our works save us somehow. This is not the case at all. In fact, he would agree with the Apostle Paul. Paul says, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. He tells Titus, Paul does, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He says in the letter to the Romans, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. James would agree with all of those statements. He has no problem with Paul saying those things. Works do not save us. But James is saying, but they are evidence, they are an outward evidence of the salvation that is working within us. This came up in a Wednesday night class, Bible study a couple of weeks ago. The topic of, I don't need religion, I just need Jesus. Some of you have heard that said. We were talking about the difference between theology and religion. Theology is what we believe about God, but religion is really how we act it out. True religion, not legalism. Please understand me this morning, not legalism. True religion is a good thing. I asked the class, how many of you feel you don't need religion, you just need Jesus? And a few hands went up. I said, okay, let's do this. Define Jesus without using religion. Can't do that because as soon as you say, well, the Bible says, you're using a religious document. As soon as you say, well, Jesus Christ is God's only son. How do you know that? That's doctrine. Take religion out of it. How do you know that? Jesus saved me. Well, from what did he save you? Sin? That sounds like a doctrinal statement. That's a religious statement. They go hand in hand. Religion, like works, naturally flows from what we believe about God. It flows forth from our faith. No, pastor, you're wrong. All I need is faith. Well, James has an argument for you, not me. James does. He says, you believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. You believe God is one? Where does he get that from a religious document called Deuteronomy? From scripture? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. You believe that this morning? How many of you believe that this morning? The Lord our God is one, amen? Yeah, you're doing good. You're on the right track. But that's not all there is. He said you do well, but you're not alone in that because demons also believe. And they do. Demons have a lot of faith. They're still demons. 
They knew who Jesus was. In fact, they were the ones who said it first in some of the gospel accounts. They cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Later in the book of Acts, these kids, these seven sons of Sceva are going around and they're trying to cast out demons by shouting out, I adjure you in the name of Jesus of whom Paul preaches. And an evil spirit finally answers them and says, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? They had faith that what they were saying would work, but they had no real evidence of a true life-changing faith within them. You see, demons have better theology than probably anybody in this room, better doctrine than all of us, and that gives them enough sense to shudder. That word shudder in the Greek, frasusin, it means they tremble, they convulse with fear. Yeah, demons have faith. Absolutely they do, but I'll tell you what they don't have. Good works. Pastor, demons don't have a relationship with Jesus. Oh yes, they do. Read your Bible. Absolutely, Jesus and demons, they know who each other are. They have a relationship. It's not a good relationship. It's not a healthy relationship. But when nobody else knows who Jesus is, they're on a first name basis with him. No, the demons, they know Jesus and they've heard of Paul. But what have we done that they know who we are and sweat when they hear our name. Verse 20 says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Are we willing to recognize that our faith without works is useless? Is our faith obvious through our works? If we don't recognize this, if we don't understand this concept, James is very blunt. He says, you're foolish. Quite foolish, actually. The, the word is kene. It means a person who is useless. In other words, what he's saying is you are as useful as your useless faith if you don't understand this. Without works, without action, our faith is dead. And notice, too, he says those words, are you willing to recognize? It's probably better translated, are you willing to see? Why does he ask that? Because going forward, he is twice, two different times, James is going to say, do you see? Do you see this? And it's also kind of his way of tracking back to something he said back in chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and has gone away, immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Are we willing to see? Is our faith obvious? Are we willing to look at it and recognize the truth? Does our faith really produce action? If it doesn't, are we willing to acknowledge that we might possess a dead faith and repent and begin seeking an active faith? Third, we have to produce a working faith. Verse 21, it reads, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now James is, is going to give us Three illustrations here. He begins by appealing to Abraham and, and evidence here also of him writing to Jewish Christians. He says, our father. He would say this to Jews who are reading this. But the three illustrations he's going to give include Abraham, Rahab, and then like Paul, he's going to refer to the human body. But in, in, in Romans 4, Paul makes a case for Abraham too. And you might read that or understand that because more people read Romans than James, it seems like. But Paul makes the case that Abraham is justified before God by grace through faith. And he appears to, he appeals to the argument, sorry, he appeals to the argument when writing to the Galatians in Galatians 3. He does the same thing. It's, it's very Pauline. 
But what we have to understand is Paul and James are not arguing with each other. Paul is arguing for the priority of faith. James is arguing for proof of faith. That it's obvious to the world around us. Paul shows Abraham has faith, was justified, declared righteous prior to his circumcision. James is explaining that Abraham's faith was evident in the practice of what he did. Specifically, Isaac's attempted sacrifice. And therefore, he's judged and he's justified. He's declared righteous. In other words, James is trying to show us that our works are the measuring stick of our justification, while faith is the basis of our justification. James had stressed this, actually, back in chapter 1 when he said, salvation is a gracious gift. and the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The work that James is specifying in Abraham's life is that trip up Mount Moriah. Dad, we're going up to offer a sacrifice. I don't see you carrying a goat. And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. Ultimately, we know the Lord does provide the ultimate sacrifice himself, his own son on the cross. James appeals to the sacrifice of Isaac because Abraham's offering of him shows his true faith in the living God. He doesn't know what God's going to do, but he knows God. He doesn't have all the belief of how it's going to pan out, but he believes God. God can raise Isaac from the dead, from the ashes of that sacrifice, if that's what he decides to do. God can bring another child along, if that's what he chooses to do. But Abraham understands God is still in control, and ultimately God is still good. James is saying the works are a vindication of his personal claim to salvation. It's not contradicting Paul, it's complimenting Paul. Salvation is determined by faith alone, but demonstrated by faithfulness to obey God's will alone. Which Paul himself emphasizes in Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. But James goes on, he says, you see faith the faith of Abraham was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Faith was working with his works. There's a synergy to the works and our faith, and they go hand in hand. They work together. Faith is the force behind what we do and how we do it. That word perfected can also be translated was made complete, but it's, it's the, this Greek word, it means to carry to the end, to take into maturity. James uses this word to emphasize faith finds its maturity, its fulfillment in action. Mature faith is viewed through the deeds it produces. Someone say, well, I'm a mature Christian. Prove it. What do we see in your life? How are you carrying that faith out? Faith is only true if it's a working faith. And James begins to wrap this illustration of Abraham up. He quotes Genesis and he quotes Isaiah. The scripture says Abraham believed God. It was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called the friend of God. It was counted or it was credited to him, depending on your translation, as righteousness. It's not just his belief that does this, but the working of his faith that made Abraham known as a friend of God. That's not in Genesis, that's in Isaiah 41.8. He's quoting that as well. And he's doing this, and we might say, well, why would he bring up Abraham as God's friend? Well, later in chapter four, 
James is going to stress the, the opposition of what it means to be a friend of God and a friend of the world. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. But here he's saying, but if we are friends of God, what we do with our life reflects that. It's obvious and it's working in our life. And as our faith grows, it has to work through us. As we grow closer to Christ, our works become more evident because our faith becomes more mature if we have a working faith that produces action. And fourth and finally, we must produce a fearless faith. Verse 24 reads, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is the second time now James has said, You see. He hopes we do see. He hopes we do understand. James is beginning to kind of wrap up these thoughts, but he's once again, he's reiterating the, faith, the, the fact that our faith Our works justify our faith. Faith alone cannot be all there is. A professing of our faith or simply possessing a faith that just remains alone and never produces any good works. Guess what that is? That's a self-deceiving faith. We're lying to ourselves. The faith we have in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did for us on the cross, the fact he sets us free from sin, that is not a cause for slothful, lazy Christianity but active, working faith. Only by trusting in Christ alone can we be declared righteous, but that trust in him must produce an action. It must be a working, moving, obvious, and fearless faith. In a subtle way, James is actually here, he's attacking a philosophy that had begun to infiltrate the church back then and still poisons the church today. It's called antinomianism comes from two Greek words, anti meaning against and nomos meaning law. In short, what it basically is is a teaching that says, well, if it feels good, just do it. It's kind of teaching that says, don't worry about the doctrine. Don't worry about teachings of scripture. Don't worry about what God has already said. God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? James says, no, (laughs) because God doesn't care about your happiness nearly as much as he cares about your eternal security. And we cannot profess Jesus Christ as Savior without embracing him as our Lord and as our Master. And as our Master and our Lord, we're now positioned under his rule, whether we like it or not. If your faith does not reflect this in the works that you do, if you don't reflect that kind of trust in him as your Lord and Master, then you don't trust him as your Savior because you don't trust him as Lord. This is the teaching of Jesus, by the way, that cost him followers. And I understand by preaching this today, some of you are probably going to send me some nice texts or emails later. Pastor, I don't know if I agreed with that. That's okay. Caused people to leave Jesus' church. He said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And everybody gets upset about that. I can't imagine why. Kind of a weird thing for him just to bust loose on them, right? They say, this is difficult to hear, Jesus. Understatement of the millennia. Jews don't eat anything with blood in it, much less human blood. What a disgusting thought to a first century Jew. He wants me to do what? Now, I've heard people say this. It is not, by the way, it is not a referring 
to communion like we took today. Communion wasn't instituted for another year. Jesus had already told them he was going to suffer and die. He's not referring to communion. Jesus is speaking of the atonement. He's speaking of his death and his resurrection. He's saying that if we want to have life, if we have truly placed our faith in him, we must devote ourselves to him completely. We cannot do that completely if we have a fearful faith. So James, what does he do? He appeals to a fearless woman of the Old Testament. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? You know, a little over a year ago, I gave a, a message on Rahab. It's a beautiful story. It's a wonderful story. I liked her story. But if we revisit it, it's in Joshua, and we find out she was a very rough woman, or at least she had a very rough past, and I think she had to be a tough woman. She was a pagan. She was a prostitute. She survived Jericho. The only way she probably could. And yet still she knew. When she heard the truth of the God of Israel, she knew. She knew enough to fear him and try to establish a relationship with him. She tells the spies, we've heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. And when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you defeated or devoted to destruction, she uses the actual name of the living God, of this pagan woman. She goes on to say that when the people of Jericho heard what God had done, their hearts melted but rather than giving in to fear of the people around her, rather than giving in to the fear of the culture, rather than giving in to the fear of her own city, her own family, her own loved ones, what does she do? She risks her own life to establish a covenant with this God, to have a relationship with him, because she knew that it, there's this possibility here that those who are loving to this God, he is loving to them. He is faithful to those who are faithful to him. And so she risks her own life to do this. And I want to be very clear this morning. James is not condoning all that she did in her life. He's not condoning the lies she's told. He's not condoning her profession. He's not condoning her lifestyle, her paganism, or any of that. But he is commending her for her faith in Yahweh. She had a fearless faith, and it was evidenced by her works and how she treated the spies. And so like Rahab, our faith should not be a cause to fear the world around us, but a cause to action. And so James summarizes with these last thoughts, verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the final illustration he uses. It's that of a body. A body without the spirit is dead. And the word he uses for spirit is pneuma. That's the Greek word, and it can be understood also as breath. Life and breath are inseparable in the body. How many of you know that? You stop breathing, you're dead, right? We've all watched enough CSI to understand that, law and order and whatnot. Matthew Poole, in his commentary, he says, life and breath are inseparable companions. As the want of breath argues want of life in the body. So lively faith and works being as inseparable, want of works argues want of life in faith. But the intention of James, I don't think it's just breath here. I think it is spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of a person. It's the spirit that animates the body, that gives life and function to the body. We see this elsewhere in Ecclesiastes 12, 7 or 
1 Corinthians 2.11, I won't read for sake of time. James is saying that faith without works to show it is like a body that's just a lump of mass. It's just dead. Now one could try and argue with James, absolutely. They could say, well, yeah, James didn't know about iron lungs. People could still be alive and on life support. People could still have a, a, a little bit of life and not be breathing on their own, but yeah, that's true. What kind of life is that? Who would ask for that life? It would only be, to carry the analogy for James, it would be a profession of faith. There would be no proof. Who would want such a spiritual life? It wouldn't be the type of faith that anybody would really want to copy. Our faith should be fearless. Our faith should be working. Our faith must be obvious and moving. In short, our faith ought to be one that produces action. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back. As we go forward this year, it's my prayer, especially as we go through this series in James, that it stirs us to action. That here at Faith Assembly, what's the name of our church? Faith out of every church in Lisbon, we ought to be the most active. Would follow, right? If we're about faith, we should be about action. Faith, assembly of God. We want to move in our faith. Bring people to faith. Share our faith. Speak of our faith. And do things from a love for God that translates into a love for others. I'll ask you to stand this morning. We're going to close in worship, but Where's your faith today? Does your belief in Christ, does it push you to move out of comfortable Christianity and into uncomfortable evangelism, sharing Jesus with others? Are you active in your faith? Do you share your faith with Christ, uh, of Christ with others? Does your faith continue to work in your heart after service? After you've proclaimed, Lord Jesus, you're my Savior, you're my King? After we sing, all these things about him, do we just go back to being us? When I, by us, I mean that shell of a person with no real moving faith. Do you find yourself asking the Lord, what's next? What can I do for you next, Lord? Or do you simply say, God, can we be done now? Can I stop? Is your faith obvious to those who know you? Or has your faith been silenced? made quiet and afraid. When our faith is placed in him, God does not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And I go back to this. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, knowing what his death means, knowing whom we have placed our faith in, that we're now free from sin and free from death, how can we not want to act on that? How can we not do something with that truth? How could we dare be lazy with our faith or quiet or dead? That's not a faith worth having. Show your faith by your works. We're going to close as we worship this morning. Our God.